Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. I want to begin by telling the story today about uh, a king who uh, committed several crimes, the crime of murder, the crime of adultery, and he tried to cover it up. Sounds a lot like what you might read in the papers or on the watch on the news today. Uh, but this particular king lived 3,000 years ago, and uh, he sent his troops off to war. It was the spring of the year. Typically, he would go with them in the spring of the year to conquer new lands, to take new kingdoms. But he did in this particular spring. He decided to stay home. The stresses of war were getting to him, the stresses of running the kingdom. And so eventually, after several days with his troops being gone, he decided that he needed just to blow off some steam. He was so stressed and so overcome with the burdens of war, he remembered that his general's wife lived next door. Now, he loved his wife, but his wife was out of town with the kids, and he was alone and no accountability, but he remembered that the general's wife lived next door. She was a beautiful woman, perfect in the standards of the day, perfect hair, perfect body, perfect personality, and so he told himself, he justified it to himself, I need this. I'm the president. I'm the king. I need this, and matter of fact, nobody will ever know. And so sure enough, he summoned for his general's wife, who was their next door neighbor, and and eventually she came over to the castle, and they committed adultery. She snuck out, and they thought no one would ever find out. Well, several weeks later, people did begin to find out when she realized that she was pregnant. And so she sent word to the king about this emergency. What are we going to do? And they wanted to contain the story before it caught uh, you know, more wildfire. And so well, they, they decided that they would bring home her husband. And so the, he brought the general home from war and asked the general to go home to his wife and spend the week and just kind of relax. After all, he'd been so busy with war. And he certainly knew that if the general would go home, that then he could blame the baby on her husband. Well, the general was such a man of integrity that he refused to go home. He says, how can I go home to my house when my troops are out on the battlefield? King, I won't leave the castle stairs. And he tried several times, go home to your wife, but he wouldn't go home. And so eventually the king sent his general back into battle and he gave orders for him to be put on the front lines. Sure enough, knowing what the king knew about that particular battle, this general was killed. Well, they mourned the loss of the general and they brought this woman into the king's house as another wife and they thought nobody would ever really know. It was contained. But after a year, the king was miserable. Picture with me what that year might have been like for him. He, he loved the Lord and wanted to please the Lord, but for that year, maybe you can think for the first few weeks, he thought, well, you know, again, it was all in God's plan, and so it's okay that I did this. And after several weeks, his stomach started to get even more upset, but he tried to justify it. It's okay that I did this. His muscles begin to hurt. The, the nightmares crept into his, his sleep and pain seemed to be everywhere. His food lost its taste. Beauty lost its luster. Even his wife lost her appeal. And after a year, his spiritual advisor, knowing everything that had happened, looked him in the eye and he said, King, you 
are the man. You are guilty of a crime. The king, as we know to be King David, instantly the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he says, I have sinned and done a great wickedness in the eyes of the Lord. And he confessed his sin and God forgave him. Unfortunately, there were consequences for his sin, but God taught King David lessons about shame, lessons about forgiveness, lessons about being made whole, lessons about confession that David never forgot and he doesn't want us to forget either. Even though it's been 3,000 years, King David gave us the gift of Psalm 32. In this Psalm that we'll read in just a moment, we'll see what we can do about our own shame, about our own guilt. Even if it's not adultery or murder, have you ever heard voices? Have you ever heard your conscience say some of these things to you? You'll never be good enough. You'll never, you never finish that degree. Your spouse left you or you left your spouse. Your family secrets aren't secret anymore. You're not pretty enough, spiritual enough, talented enough, smart enough, powerful enough, skinny enough, muscular enough, winsome enough, prepared enough, healthy enough. You're not a good enough mom or dad. You're not a good enough lover. You're not a good enough friend. You're not a good enough employee. And you're certainly not a good enough boss. This past week, as I was studying shame, I learned some things that I don't, I don't think I've ever learned or it never sank in about the connections between shame and so many other problems in life. Problems like addiction. You know, so much of our addiction is rooted in our shame. We try to drown our shame with drugs or maybe we try to drown it by getting drunk. We, we're depressed at times because of our shame. We strike out in violence and aggression. Our eating disorders many times have connections to our shame. And one of the leading causes of suicide is shame. This morning, I promise you, shame is affecting somebody you love. If it's not affecting you, I promise it's affecting somebody you love. And so every week, these sermons tend to go through my heart and I wrestle with them. But I am more convinced this week that Bible Center Church needs this message like no other. And so in the next few minutes, I'm going to ask you for the price of your attention. I'm going to ask you to take notes or even mental notes, if not for you, for somebody else because I believe God has given us this message for a reason. Today, I'm gonna to define shame and then give you four ways you can end it once and for all. Will you stand with me out of respect for the Bible and let's read Psalm 32. Psalm 32 and verse one. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. 
I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So first of all, we ask the question, what is shame? If we're going to remedy it, if we're going to end it in our lives, let's identify it. What is shame? Well, shame is the painful or vulnerable feeling that I get about myself when I sin against God, hurt someone I love, realize I'm not good enough, or do something embarrassing. Now, I must put a caveat here. Sometimes shame comes on us of no fault of our own. Somebody abuses us. Somebody humiliates us. So we're not saying that all shame is because of a choice that we've made, but the distinction I'm trying to make is shame is something that affects us. It's about ourselves. It's something that we feel about ourselves, not just about something we have done. Sometimes we're ashamed because of a bad choice that we've made. Sometimes we're ashamed because of a bad choice somebody else has made, a spouse, a child, a friend. Maybe it's simply something as simple as forgetting your wallet or forgetting to zip your zipper, right? Last week I was preaching and I, I didn't have a button the whole time. Like the whole time I had a button loose like this in the second service. I don't know that I've really felt shame about that, but it was kind of embarrassing afterwards, you know, for Pastor Caleb like came up and it was like, hey, you need to button your button. It's like, thanks, Caleb. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Guilt is different than shame. Guilt says I did something bad, but shame says I am bad. There's a big difference between the two. Many theologians believe that this emotion is the closest that a human being can get to hell on this side of eternity. Think about it. In, heaven, in hell, there's no intimacy. There's no joy. There's no wonder. There's no sense of belonging. There's no acceptance. And so sometimes shame can feel like a personal hell. Dan Ollender and Trimper Longman in a book that you, you would love and that would bless you, they write this, to be covered with shame is to feel oneself engulfed in something disgusting, even hideous. It may seem extreme, but the experience of shame feels like a prolonged, torturous death. So how are we gonna end this? If it's so bad, what are we going to do about our shame? I'll tell you what we're not gonna do. I'm not gonna tell you today that you should ignore it. Like if you just ignore it, your shame will go away. It's not gonna work. Also, me telling you that you have nothing to be ashamed of isn't gonna help either, right? Because we know that many of us have made mistakes, we, we've thought things we shouldn't think, we've done things we shouldn't do, and, and so for me just to tell you that pretend like those things didn't happen, that's not gonna help either. But God's word has some very comforting words and some very helpful words that are honest but still provide encouragement. Number one, this is what I'd like you to do this week. Believe that God cares about your shame and wants to guide you out of it. Believe that God cares about your shame and wants to guide you out of it. This is a short point, but I wanna mention it first. Uh, it comes from verse eight, and we'll read verse eight in a minute. But the reason we're starting in verse eight is because the Psalms aren't written like the New Testament are written. The Psalms were written with a Hebrew mind. 
the New Testament, much of it was written with the Greek in mind. And so the Greeks wrote like point one leads to point two, leads to point three, leads to point four. Paul was a, a, Greek, a Greco-Roman lawyer. And so the apostle Paul, even though he was Jewish, his writings are, are very Greek. They're very Roman. But the Psalms, the main point doesn't often come at the beginning or the end. Often in the Psalms, the main point comes in the middle. So I can explain that more in a class at another time. But the main verse, scholars believe in verse Psalm 32 is verse 8. They believe that's the center. Everything points to verse 8. And it's simply this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. And so I want to start with just this idea that Psalm 32 is a gift to you from God to give you instruction on how to deal with your shame. Why is it so important that we know that God cares? Well, even secular, non-Christian therapists tell us that empathy is the first step to overcoming our shame. You see, shame lives in dark places. Shame feeds on secrecy and silence and judgment. But the only way to overcome that is to turn on the light of empathy. And the light of empathy begins to dispel shame like nothing else. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that verse eight just simply reminds us that God cares about your shame and he wants to guide you out of it. So number two, if we believe that, what can we do then? Number two, stop pretending to be somebody you're not, but get vulnerable with God about your sin and shame. Stop pretending to be somebody you're not, but get vulnerable with God about your sin and shame. This is when the hard work begins, warning. We're about to get bogged down. Put your mind in four-wheel drive for a minute. Put your heart in four-wheel drive. This is hard work. Verse three, he says in Psalm 32, three, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day. For the year that David tried to conceal his murder, conceal his adultery, for that whole year, the Bible says he suffered psychological effects, physical effects. It doesn't mean that every illness is related to shame, right? Many of our illnesses are just related to living in a fallen world. But you know as well as I know, when we're covering up things, when we're at odds with somebody else, or if we're at odds with God, it affects us. It affects me. At least it affects my stomach, right? You just get, everything gets in knots. It's so much easier to, to get upset. Notice verse four. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me, David said. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You ever felt that way? Not just physically, but spiritually. Have you ever known that you were involved in doing something that you shouldn't do or God told you to do something that you weren't doing and it just bothered you and you knew that it was wrong and you just felt like God's hand was heavy on you? It's a loving hand. We're thankful that he doesn't leave us alone in our sin, but it's still a heavy hand. And in verse five, David says this, then... Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. In verse five, count the mys. Count the personal references in verse five. He says, I acknowledge my sin. I did not cover up my iniquity. 
I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. For a year, he justified it. But after a year, he quit justifying it. He, he stopped making excuses. He, he stopped saying, well, this is a hard life and I deserve a little extra on the side. Or, hey, I've worked hard and I deserve what I've been given as the king. He no longer made excuses that his wife was out of town or that his wife wasn't responsive to him physically, so it justified his adultery. He stopped saying things like, what I'm doing is not that bad, especially compared to other people. But David would have agreed with the words of the song from Led Zeppelin, nobody's fault but mine. After a year, he realizes, this is my fault. I did this. Now, what we're talking about this morning is not comfortable to discuss with friends. And I can assure you it's not comfortable to discuss from a platform with five or 600 of your favorite people looking at you, right? You're talking about confessing your sin. Our society doesn't find this very popular. What I find, and, and I love TV just like the next person, but what I find is that when it comes to the concept of sin, our world does one of two things. They either laugh or they shudder. Here's what I mean by laugh. They make jokes about sin all the time, right? I watch Saturday Night Live occasionally, and it's just almost this, there's this mockery, right, in the world about sin. We find ways to make jokes of it, or we shudder. If some knew, if a non-Christian therapist knew that we were talking about sin and guilt and shame in this way, that there may be this, almost this aversion, like, you guys are a cult. What are you talking about? This is, this is strange, this is odd, this is destructive language. But according to the Bible, God does have a standard of righteousness. He has a standard of holiness. He says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Jesus took it to a whole nother level and he said, don't even do these things in your heart. Don't even, don't even lust, don't even hate. Don't lie. The Apostle Paul was well aware of the need to point people back to God's standard. The Apostle Paul writes this. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, Paul dealt in a day similar to ours. The Greek philosophers would have debated whether or not it's healthy to discuss your sin. And Paul writes this. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. He's talking about popular opinion. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. He's talking about his own conscience, his own sense of right and wrong. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. So first, let's leave that verse up on the screen. Go back, if you will, to one slide, to verse three. Paul says, I don't really care about popular opinion. And it's not that Paul was insensitive. You can see he was a great missionary and, and Paul surveyed the areas where he went and he spoke in language and way and used illustrations that culture would have understood. So Paul's not saying I reject culture, but what Paul is saying is I don't derive my sense of right and wrong from culture. And here's a good reason why not to do that because culture changes. Think about what used to be really, really bad 50 years ago that is no longer bad today. And think about what used to be really, really good 50 years ago, but now it's considered to be bad. 
I mean, you have your illustrations, I have mine. Who knows what we're doing today will be culturally unacceptable in 50 years. So public opinion changes like the wind. Paul wasn't concerned about his own conscience. He says, I, I don't even judge myself. Paul's not discounting the conscience. He writes about that later in the New Testament. But what he's saying is, I can't trust my conscience to be my ultimate guide. Now, I love Disney. I'm a raving Disney fan, without apology. But Jiminy Cricket was wrong when he said, let your conscience be your guide. Have you ever read the, the manuscripts of war trials when they're trying war criminals? Right? They, many of them feel no sense of shame for slaughtering millions of people. Somehow or another, their conscience had been changed. There are things I made a big deal about in my 20s. But now that I'm 39, I don't make such a big deal about. When I'm 49, there's probably gonna be things that I make a big deal about now that I'm probably gonna not make such a big deal about when I'm 49. And there's probably gonna be things I make more of a deal about than I don't now. Because our consciences change with age and wisdom and experience. So Paul says there is a standard. Our guilt and our shame have a standard and it's God's word. For the sake of argument, let's pretend for a moment that there is no ultimate standard. Let's say that you will not be judged in the end by what God says. Let's just pretend that's not true. So don't say that I said that. I'm just saying pretend for a moment. Pretend that you're not gonna be judged at the end of time on God's word, but pretend like you're only gonna be judged on your word, your standards. So there's no pretend, there's no standard, there's no 10 commandments. You're only gonna be judged by your standard. Think about how many times you have used the word should or should not in reference to somebody else. They should do this or they should not do this. Let's just pretend that every time you pointed your theoretical finger at someone, and like I have, and you said that person should do this or that person should stop doing this. Every time you did that, let's just say a tape recorder was turned on, right? And at the end of time, when you die and you stand before the Lord, all God does, he doesn't get out the 10 commandments, all God does is he hits play on every time you said should or should not about somebody else. And let's say that God uses that as the standard by which you are judged. How many of us would be able to even be judged by our own standard? The truth is we all fall short. God's word is true and God is not a liar, but even if these things like the 10 commandments and the principles of scripture, even if they're not rooted in the character of God, which they are, think about what society would be like if there were no righteous standards, even lying. If there was no sense of lying, think about what it would do to the economy, what it would do to justice, what it would do to relationships. And so God says, confess your sin. Acknowledge it. Get vulnerable with him about it. Eugene Peterson says, if we hold our sins inside, hoping to hide them, they fester and poison our whole system. The only one who can do anything about sin is God. Confession is the act that brings sin out into the open and lets God take care of it. Confession isn't weakness. Vulnerability isn't weakness, it's courage. It's acknowledging, it's owning up, it's getting honest, it's getting authentic, as my generation says, transparent. It's important to do that with God. How long has it been 
since you confessed any sin to God. And I don't just mean like you're throwing up Hail Marys while you're driving down, but only like, how long has it been since you just said, Lord, I'm wrong. I agree with you. This was wrong. Lord, I said this and I shouldn't have said this. God, I thought this and I shouldn't have thought this. Lord, I did this and I shouldn't have done this. I'm sorry. One of my mentors, one of the guys who discipled me in college, he, he challenged us, and I don't do this every night, but even this week, this has been just soul searching for me. He challenged us in college. He, he said, every night before you go to bed, before you go to sleep, and you know, you turn out the lights or you turn off the TV, let the last thing you do be your prayer to God. Lord, is there anything I've done today to sin against you? And if so, just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Accept your forgiveness. I confess this is sin. Help me to change and live for your grace tomorrow. What an awesome way to live. In verse nine, he warns us not to try to hide our sin. This is a, an interesting verse for you animal lovers. He says in verse nine, do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. This past week, I experienced this. I took my dog, Queso. This is Queso. Queso uh, is now about two years old. He's fully grown, a miniature golden doodle. Queso um, was walking around the church parking lot. He typically does a few times a week with me, walks or tries to jog. Um, but something happened last week that caused Queso not to like the church parking lot. Uh, we're not really sure what it was. It was either the crows because he is a shiver liver, or um, we think maybe Riley had brought him out whenever it was really hot. Maybe his paws hit the, the asphalt and it was a little too hot for him, and so he didn't really want to go up on the church parking lot. Whatever it was, he does not want to go back on the church parking lot. So it was like Monday or Tuesday, and I'm trying to bring him up to the church parking lot, and the whole time he, he, just, he just wants to stop. He won't go. He sets down. He's scared of whatever it is in this horrible, terrible church parking lot, but he won't move. And I'm trying to, you know, convince him, hey, buddy, come on, man, this is fun. Ever since, you know, for the last two years, it's a lot more fun when you do what I say. And, and God is telling us it's a lot more fun when we just do what he says. Don't hide it. Don't try to figure it out. Just confess it. Lord, I'm sorry. Help me to change. Help me to grow. Number one, believe that God takes God cares about your shame and wants to guide you out of it. Number two, stop pretending to be somebody you're not, but get vulnerable with God. Number three, remember, I love this, remember that Jesus empathizes with your shame and draws especially close when you feel broken. Remember, Jesus empathizes with your shame and draws especially close when you feel broken. Thankfully, he doesn't leave us in our shame. Look at verse six and seven. David, the one who committed adultery, the one who murdered, the one who covered it up, he writes this in verse six and seven. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Most scholars believe that this is the antithesis of shame. 
If you want to describe what shame is, it's the opposite of this. Shame is not having a hiding place. It's feeling naked before God and before others. Shame is feeling like the the mighty waters of circumstances are going to overwhelm you. Shame is feeling unprotected. Shame is feeling troubled. Shame is feeling like nobody wants to praise you or thank God for you. You're alone. That's shame. But this is the opposite of shame. God wants to bring you into a place of safety, a place of covering, a place of protection. Think of the story of the Garden of Eden, the true story of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they sin against the Lord. And so what do they do when God comes to walk through the garden in the cool of the day? They hide themselves, like they're actually gonna hide from God. They hide themselves because they felt ashamed, they felt naked before the Lord. And what does God do? He comes, he finds them, he clothes them with animal skins. And he tells them that one day he's going to send a savior. God came looking for them. They didn't go looking for God. And I hope you hear this morning that your God brought you here today because he does not want you to live in your shame. He's tired of you beating yourself up in your shame. He's tired of you letting Satan overwhelm you in your shame. And he wants you to know that he wants to cover your shame and bring you into a place of safety. How can he do that? The reason he can do that is because he stepped into your shame for you. Hebrews 1 and 2 says that Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame. He endured the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin and shame. He was buried and he rose again the third day because he knew we could never overcome our guilt and our shame on our own. I love what Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Let's stop there for just a minute. Well, let's go to the next phrase. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. That's where we'll stop. Think about what tempted you this week. What tempted you this week? Jesus was tempted in similar ways. You're like, no, no way. Yes way. The technology may have been different. The vehicle may have been different, but you were tempted in the same ways, similar ways that Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in every way. And it says, yet he empathizes with you just as we are, yet he did not sin. Satan wants you to feel alone in your temptation. He wants you to feel alone in your shame, but you are not alone because Jesus understands. Jesus cares. He felt what you feel. And even though you and me sometimes choose poorly, he never did. But he still, he says, I understand. I understand your shame. I understand what you feel. Number one, believe that God cares about your shame and wants to guide you out of it. Number two, stop pretending to be somebody you're not, but be vulnerable with God about your sin and shame. Number three, remember that Jesus empathizes with your shame and draws especially close when you feel broken. And number four, find your value in what God says about you, not in your idols. Find your value in what God says about you not in your idols. Verse one, Psalm 32. Verse one, he says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins 
are covered. He doesn't say blessed are the perfect ones. Blessed are the forgiven ones. Only those who are truly forgiven can experience happiness and blessing and true eternal joy. The Bible says God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He chooses not to remember our sin anymore, which is why he says in verse two, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. We live in a world that loves to count our sins against us. The world does. Even people who are non-believers, people who reject the Bible, right? They're like, there's no such thing as absolute standards. It's amazing how people like that can find absolute standards when they want to throw your mistakes back in your face, right? There is no God, they say. There's no, there's no standard. The Bible isn't true. But when you make a mistake, it's something in their heart. And that's, that's, that's Romans 1. It's the law of God written on their hearts. But it's amazing. The world loves to bring up our mistakes, our flesh loves to bring up our mistakes. If your flesh is like mine, man, it doesn't even take the devil and it doesn't even take the world. My flesh can get me down faster than just about anything else. Reminding me of something that I said or thought or did. And it might even be years ago. There are times where Sarah will just find me mulling over things. And I'm, I don't know, the older I get, I'm talking to myself. I don't know what that means, but she's like, what, what, are, you, what are you saying? I'm like, just talking, thinking through things that may happen years ago. Our flesh does that to us. Satan does that to us. He's the accuser of the brethren. He, he accuses us. Christians, do we ever do this to one another? Do you think we Christians are ever guilty of not letting somebody truly be forgiven? You, you ever been around Christians when somebody sinned or made a mistake, do we, have we ever shot our own wounded? At times, unfortunately, we do. So in verse 10, God says, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. According to verse 10, we have a choice to make. Here's the choice. We can trust in what God says about us, about our value from him, or we can trust in what others say about us, the world, the flesh, the devil, our idols, and we can find our value from them. I just wanna warn you as we're getting ready to close here in a minute, as your pastor and as your friend, that if you find value in what anybody says about you other than God, you will experience shame. Shame will hit you before you hit the parking lot. I promise you. So I wrote down some things that we tend to find value in. We tend to find value in getting stuff done. Like, that's one of my temptations. You get stuff done. You get a day where everything gets checked off your checklist. You're like, yes, I am the man, right? Like, I got so much done today. But what happens on the other 364 days a year when you don't get your checklist done? What do you feel? You go home and you feel shame. Well, that's an idol. It's an idol in my life. There's nothing wrong with getting stuff done. But if that's where we find our identity, we will come up short. Popularity, being accepted. We find our popularity. If somebody thinks they're the most popular person here in Charleston, West Virginia, all you gotta do is go to a bigger city and you're no longer popular like maybe you are here. But that's true for everybody. If we put our, our identity and our spirituality, what happens when you make a mistake? What happens when somebody knows that you lost it at work? If you put your identity in your spirituality and all of a sudden you, it'll devastate you because your spirituality perhaps became an idol. Financial prowess, 
Everything's going well financially. What happens when the bottom falls out? And it can happen to any one of us at any day. What about our health? Right, I wanna be healthy, you wanna be healthy. But what happens when that disease comes that, that we couldn't stop? It wasn't because we ate bad food and it wasn't because we made poor choices. It just came. What about our reputation? Right, if we put our identity and our reputation, do you know that we're all one accusation away from losing a good reputation? In our world, you're not innocent until proven guilty. You're guilty until proven innocent, even if you don't go to jail. And so what happens if somebody at work or somebody in the community accuses you of something that you didn't do? If your reputation is your idol, it will crush you unless you believe what God says about you. Your children, we put our, our identity in our kids, right? I want my kids to love Jesus and make good choices. Do you think your kids will ever make poor choices? Certainly they will. So when parents come into my office and they're devastated because of poor choices their children made, my heart goes out because my kids aren't perfect either and they're still on the journey. But if our identity is in our kids, we're gonna experience shame, our physical appearance. Every birthday, I was just thinking, never, I'm not even gonna talk about that. Every birthday, it just gets worse. Our politics, you put your identity in a candidate because this candidate is the white knight who's gonna save America and he's gonna save Christianity and he's gonna save Jesus. But all of a sudden, that candidate makes a poor choice. It's interesting, well, what happened to that candidate? Somebody must have given that candidate bad advice. No, that a candidate's not Jesus and he never was. And so our identity can't be in politics. Our identity can't even be in humility, our fear, or inadequacy. I did some soul searching this week, and this past two weeks ago, I was at Thomas Hospital, and I got to pray for the new Baby Steps unit. And while I was there, it was a really neat honor. And many of you are involved in that new unit, uh, City Ministries, and a number of you hold the babies who are affected by neonatal abstinence syndrome. Um, but I got to go and pray. And so I was really excited to go and pray. Wasn't really nervous, excited. And I walk in and I, I see there's like, you know, 50 people all right there huddled in the hallway. There's a lady who used to be my Sunday school teacher when I was like seven, right? And I remember I get in trouble a lot with that teacher when I was seven. And then she's like, oh, Pastor Matt. And I don't know, like, even though I'm the senior pastor, I'm like, yes, I did it. I know I did it. I'm sorry, I did it. I'm sorry about 32 years ago, you know, I see her and then like, you know, there's these cameras. So on TV, you don't realize how close the cameras are. I feel like they put the cameras right up your nostrils and they asked me to pray. And so I'm getting ready to pray. And I got like two cameras right here. And I just got like this sense of inadequacy. Like, man, they got the wrong guy. I'm just this guy for this kid who grew up in St. Albans. What in the world am I doing here with cameras and people and hospital? And then what am I doing here? And this sense of inadequacy and fear. And I started sweating and getting nervous. And, and I kind of snuck out the side door at a, at a time that was appropriate. And I went home and was like, why did I feel this sense of like embarrassment or shame? It's because even in my fear and sense of inadequacy, that had become an idol. And what God calls us to do in verse 10 is he says, just trust in the Lord. Our authority does not come in how good we are or even how bad we are. Our authority is the Lord. He says he loves us. That's all that matters. Verse 11, because of that, in conclusion, we can rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous, sing all you who are upright in heart. When you understand this, even when all the bottom falls out of life, 
you can say the truest thing about me is what God says about me. Here's a statement for you to remember. Maybe put this on your phone, put it on your fridge. I'm more sinful than I ever imagined, but I'm more loved than I ever dreamed. I'm more sinful than I ever imagined, but I'm more loved than I ever dreamed. How can we put an end to our shame? Number one, believe that God cares about you. He cares about your shame and he wants to guide you out of it. Number two, stop pretending to be somebody you're not, but get vulnerable with God about your sin and shame. Number three, remember that Jesus empathizes with your shame and draws especially close when you feel broken. Number four, find your value in what God says about you, not in your idols. I am more sinful than I ever imagined. I am more loved than I ever dreamed. Let's pray. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.